just a moment, we are going to turn to our text for this morning. Before we do that, though, I'd like to invite any kids forward who would like to for a children's message this morning. Any kids who would like to come forward, you can come gather around me up here, and uh, we'll do a little children's message to begin. Good morning. This is good. I think last time I invited kids up, I got two of you, so it's good to have a few more. You guys can take a seat kind of around me, okay? And uh, I just want to tell you about a couple of things that I found in my office here at church when I started as pastor here about two and a half years ago. So when I uh, came here about two and a half years ago and moved into my office, brought all my books and all my stuff, all my work stuff into my office, I found a couple of things waiting there for me. First, I found 300 copies of this book. Stacks and stacks and stacks of this book. It's called I Am a Church Member. Uh, turns out the pastor before me, the interim pastor, Pastor Joel Boot, uh, had bought 300 copies of this book and intended to use them for a sermon series, and then he quit before he did that. And he also watches our sermons online, or our services online sometimes. So sorry to throw you under the bus, Joel. Uh, we do love you, and I found these books incredibly helpful because then we gave them out to the entire congregation, and we actually still use this book in our new members class. Uh, but I have 300 copies of this book sitting in my office when I moved in. I also had this. What is this? A Bible. It's a Bible, exactly. And there's something kind of interesting about this Bible, though. What is it? Blank. It's blank. I have no idea why there was a blank Bible in my office, but it's literally blank from beginning to end. No idea. I think it's some sort of joke that Pastor Tony left for me, maybe. Uh, I think sometimes I'm just going to sit and act like I'm reading the Bible in my office so that when people walk by and they see me reading a blank Bible, they don't really know what to do with it. Um, but I think it's rather amusing, so I've, kept that, I've held, it, uh, held on to it, uh, kept it, and I think it'll come in handy at some point for some sort of sermon illustration. We'll see. And then the final thing that I had sit in my office was a giant five-pound green gummy bear. You remember? Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that in one second. I had this giant five-pound green gummy bear that, again, Pastor Joel had left for me. I think he was going to use it for a children's message like this. And so after I found that, it was in a sealed plastic bag in a box, I started thinking, what could I do with a giant five-pound green gummy bear? And I came to the only conclusion I think one could come to, which is, I'm going to blow this up. But I kind of waited for the right moment. I sort of figured that like, we should do it as a staff building exercise or something. So I asked uh, Matt to actually get a hold, our worship director, uh, which this definitely falls in his job description, to get a hold of some explosives for me. And, uh, and he came uh, to the office one day with a bunch of M100s. And I said, I think this will work just great. And so a couple of weeks ago, as I was thinking ahead to this week and this sermon, I thought this is the perfect time to blow up that gummy bear. Because in a little bit, the text that we're going to read talks about the power of the Holy Spirit. And the word that Jesus uses to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit actually has this idea of explosiveness. And so I thought, you know what would be so cool? To jam this gummy bear full of some explosives, blow it up, and it'll make a perfect children's message. So what we did one day as a staff, because uh, this falls within all of our job descriptions, is uh, we took a few of those M100s, three of them, and we put them in that gummy bear and then this is what happened. Three of us tried to light it. So Matt, Nate, and myself. Oh, 
and here it goes. And that's it, that's all happened. Um, so, I still had a couple of those M100s, so I decided, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna carve a big hole in this thing. I'm gonna take all the rest of them, I'm gonna uh, take all of their fuses and, and uh, twine them all together. I'm gonna take a longer fuse, I'm gonna wrap that around those fuses, and we're gonna blow all of those things at once, and that will make that gummy bear blow up. And so this is what happened. And that's it. And this is the first children's message I think that I have tried to do that has utterly failed. <laughs> but fortunately, Google never fails me. So that's what I thought would happen with our gummy bear. It didn't, but I found it on Google. And uh, like I said, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in the passage that we're about to talk about, or the, the passage we're about to read. He, he talks about the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's the idea, actually, that the power of the Holy Spirit is explosive, that it is fierce, that it has a power unlike anything else, that it actually kind of blows things apart, changes and transforms them, and then unlike an explosive, it actually puts them back together. And so that's what we're going to talk about in a little bit, and I just wanted to give you an image of that this morning. You all can make your way back to your seats. And while they're doing that, I'd like to ask you to open to our text for this morning. Just one verse, Acts 1, verse 8. Acts 1, verse 8. And that's on page 882, if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews here. And we are in the last week of our sermon series this summer, looking at the Holy Spirit, and we're going to wrap that up today. So Acts 1, verse 8. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples after his resurrection, but before his ascension. And this is what he says to them in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, there's a quote that's been rolling around in my head uh, ever since we first started this sermon series a couple of months ago. It's from pastor and author Francis Chan in his book about the Holy Spirit, Forgotten God, which I highly recommend, by the way. And at one point towards the end of the book, Chan writes this. He says, I bet you'd agree that a group of talented, charismatic leaders can draw a crowd. And he's specifically talking about a church setting here. Find the right creative team, musicians, and speakers, and you can grow any church. It doesn't even have to be a Christian church. The fact is that without making a conscious choice to depend on the Holy Spirit, we can do a lot. A while back, I asked my church during a service if they thought I could successfully sell insurance as a career. I did this because I know that some of my natural skills are connected to interacting with people and speaking. The fact is that we all have jobs that come naturally for us. 
because of how I was made, I could be an insurance salesman if I had a little bit of training, and I could probably pull off a fairly adequate church on my own as well. But who wants or needs that? I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. I want people to look at my life and know that I couldn't be doing this by my own power. I want to live in such a way that I am desperate for him to come through, that if he doesn't come through, I'm in trouble. I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. That line has just been rolling around and around in my head the last few months. It's been rolling around and around because I agree with it. As a Christian, I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. I don't want what I do to make sense without him. I don't want to live and act according to my own power. And I don't want you to either or this church. Instead, and this has been a growing conviction in me the last couple of months, I want it to be apparent to everyone who looks at me, everyone who looks at you, and everyone who looks at Ivanrest Church to know that it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are who we are, do the things that we do, and live the way that we live, all in pursuit of God's kingdom. I want it to be only by the power of the Holy Spirit. After all, that's what Jesus tells his disciples in our passage for this morning, right? He tells them it is by the Spirit that they will do everything that they are about to do. Let's just set the scene here so we understand what's going on in this passage. Basically, Luke, uh, who's the author of this book, tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. In other words, he wanted to get his disciples ready for everything that's about to happen, ready to continue his work, ready to continue his mission, ready to continue his ministry after he ascends back to heaven. Think of it kind of like the most important cram session in all of history. Okay, with Jesus sort of cramming in everything that his disciples still need to know in order to carry on his work. And one of the things that Jesus crams in with his disciples during these 40 days between his resurrection and ascension is some teaching on the Holy Spirit. As Luke writes in the verses just before this text, on one occasion while he was eating with them, Jesus gave his disciples this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, the disciples actually seem a bit confused by this. Uh, in verses 6 and 7, it seems like they think Jesus is telling them that he's going to lead some sort of nationalistic recovery of the ancient kingdom of Israel, not unlike how some evangelical Christians today seem to think our faith is all about a nationalistic recovery of the United States. But Jesus corrects them. No, he tells them. It's not through Israel that God is going to bring about his kingdom, or America for that matter. Rather, it's through the Holy Spirit. It's through his presence, his power, and his life-changing work in them. That is how God is going to spread his kingdom. That's how his mission will continue. That's how Jesus' ministry will go on after he ascends. It's not going to happen through a nationalistic recovery of some sort of nation state, but instead through us, God's people, his church, 
spirit-transformed believers in Christ living out their faith in his name. Again, as Jesus says in our text for this morning, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's through the Spirit and Christ's church that the power and presence of God will spread throughout the world. Now that word power that Jesus uses here is an interesting one. In the Greek, the word is dynamis, and it's actually where we get the word dynamite from, and that's the sense here. Dynamis literally means the ability or power to perform a mighty deed. But like we just talked about in that children's message, there's an explosiveness to that word, a volatility, a fierceness. And that's the kind of power Jesus says the Holy Spirit has. He has a life-changing, world-altering, dynamic, dynamite power that blows things apart, transforms them, and then puts them back together in a new way. And that's what we see when we look at the work of the Holy Spirit throughout history, right? We see people, churches, communities, even whole countries that the Spirit blows apart, transforms, and then puts back together in radically different ways. And so very simply, that's what we're going to do this morning. We are just going to look at story after story of the Holy Spirit changing people, changing churches, changing even whole communities in ways that don't make sense, don't fit our human understanding, and aren't explainable apart from his work. And I'll be up front with you, this is going to be a different kind of sermon than how I normally preach, uh, because it's going to just be one story after another of the Holy Spirit's work. But my hope is that by hearing these stories about other believers, other Christians, we'll get a sense of how the Holy Spirit can work in our own lives, too. So let's dive in. And let's actually start with this book, the book of Acts, and some of the other stories we find there. Uh, the book of Acts was originally called Praxis Apostolon, which in Greek means the Acts of the Apostles, and we've just shortened it to Acts in just one word, but it was originally the Acts of the Apostles. And that's because that's kind of what that book is. It's an anthology, a collection, a storybook of the different acts and actions of the early apostles and the early church. And yet, as I once heard someone point out a number of years ago, and I unfortunately don't remember who it was who said this, a better title for this book might actually be Praxis Hagionumatos, which means the acts of the Holy Spirit. Because that's really what we see in the book of Acts, right? We see the Holy Spirit at work. Yes, we see the acts, the actions of the apostles and the early Christians, but we only see those acts, those actions, because the Holy Spirit is there, working in them, working through them, doing God's work. So what are some of those acts that work, that power of the Holy Spirit in this book? Well, like we talked about a number of weeks ago, Pentecost is one of them, right? That's when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early Christian uh, believers, 
The disciples were all sitting there one day, locked up in a room for fear of the Jewish leaders, when suddenly there was the sound like that of a blowing of a violent wind that ripped its way through them. Something like tongues of fire appeared and separated and came to rest on each of them. And they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in different languages. Drawn by the commotion and the noise, a crowd gathered. And Peter, up until now a simple, if opinionated, fisherman, stood up, addressed the crowd, and compellingly preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what was the result? 3,000 people converted and joined the church in one day. How do you explain any of that apart from the Holy Spirit? What about Acts chapter 3? In that chapter, Peter and John, another of the apostles, went to the temple to pray. Passing through the gate called Beautiful, they encountered a beggar who asked them for money. And in response, Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, this whole situation actually gets uh, Peter and John in a bit of hot water. They get hauled in uh, by the Jewish authorities, and they have to answer for what, what's just happened, what they've just done, in front of the entire Sanhedrin, which is the ruling Jewish council at the time. But even that turns into an opportunity, because in the process of defending themselves, they actually get to preach the gospel to the Sanhedrin. Again, how do you explain any of that without the Holy Spirit? Or what about Saul? Many of us probably know the story, but in Acts chapter 9, a man named Saul, who is a Pharisee and an opponent of the church, is on his way to Damascus. Carrying with him a letter from the high priest, he is going to Damascus to persecute the church. On his way, though, something happens. The text says, as he, Saul, neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And so Saul got up and went into Damascus and encountered a Christian man named Ananias. And rather than continue to persecute the church, Saul himself became a Christian. In fact, he actually became one of the most famous Christians of all time. He changed his name to the one that we probably know him better by, which is Paul. And he became one of the most prolific Christian missionaries in history, as well as the author of about a quarter of the New Testament. And again, how can you explain that kind of transformation in someone, going from persecutor to apostle, without the work of the Holy Spirit in their life? And we could go on, right? I mean, there are more healings, more visions, more conversions, more miracles, and even a resurrection or two in the book of Acts. The point, though, is that if you want evidence of the Holy Spirit's work, you really don't need to look much further than this. If you do want to look further, though, I think church history is a good place to look. You see, Scripture is all well and good, but if the Holy Spirit's power is really as dynamic as Jesus says it is here, then we would expect it to continue, right? We would expect the Holy Spirit to keep working, to keep moving, his power to keep having an effect even beyond the pages of Scripture. 
And that's exactly what we see. For instance, I've told this story before, but I just love it. So I'm going to tell it again. In the fourth century, a thief and murderer by the name of Moses was on the run. Part of a notorious gang of robbers in the Nile Valley of Egypt, he had stolen a bunch of sheep from someone he had a grudge against. While this was far from the first time that he had broken the law, uh, the authorities were on to him, and so to evade capture, he hid in a Christian monastery so that they couldn't find him. But while he was there, he ended up being so impressed by the monks who lived in that monastery and their faith that he converted to Christianity himself. Giving up violence, he dedicated his life to Christ and became a monk. In fact, she, in fact, he actually ended up becoming one of the most famous monks of the early church. And he taught hundreds of other monks how to live as faithful disciples of Jesus before eventually he was martyred for his faith. A murderer and a thief who becomes a monk. Only the Holy Spirit can explain that. Or what about what happened in the German town of Hernhut in the year 1727? That year, inspired by a desire to see God send missionaries to parts of the world that never heard the gospel, a group of Moravian Christians began to pray. Asking God to raise up people willing to go, the Moravians decided to pray continuously in shifts, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, until they started to see those missionaries that they were praying for go out. And that practice of continuous prayer in Hernhut, with people taking shifts and passing off the prayer from one person to the next, it didn't just last for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. It ended up lasting for over a hundred years. For a hundred years, the Christians of that German village, taking turns, prayed uninterrupted, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for a century. And during that time, they saw hundreds of missionaries go out all over the world. In fact, they became the first Christian group to send lay people instead of just clergy, the first Protestant denomination to minister to slaves, and the first Protestant presence in many parts of the world. And again, how do you explain that apart from the Holy Spirit? Or this one, this one's a bit more familiar. In the late 18 and early 1900s, a Dutch Reformed Christian watchmaker named Corey Tenboom lived and worked with her family in a watch shop in the Dutch city of Harlem. Long involved in fighting poverty and injustice towards the vulnerable in their community, the Tenboom switched to hiding Jews and resistance fighters after the Nazis invaded Holland in 1940. They eventually built a secret room in their house, which they called the hiding place. And it's estimated uh, that they, over the course of the war, they were able to save around 800 Jewish people. And they would have them hide there in the hiding place until they could get them safely out of the country. Late in the war, though, on February 28, 1944, a Dutch informant by the name of Jan Vogel told the Nazis about the Ten Booms. And just after noon that day, the Nazis stormed their house, arrested their entire family, and sent them to prison. Now, a lot of the people that the Nazis arrested that day were soon released, but Corey, her father Casper, and her sis sister Betsy continued to be held. Ten days later, while still in prison, her father Casper died. Meanwhile, Corey and her sister Betsy were tried, found guilty, and eventually shipped to Ravensbrück concentration camp. There they continued to serve others, caring for the sick and weak, and hosting a weekly worship service with a Bible that they had managed to smuggle into the camp. 
While they were in prison, they made plans to establish a place of healing in the Netherlands after the war. But Betsy never got to see it. That's because on December 16, 1944, after months of deteriorating health, she died at the age of 50. Before she died, she told her sister, Corey, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Twelve days later, Corey herself left that pit, that concentration camp. That's because suddenly and without explanation, she was released. She later found out that her release was due to a clerical error and she never should have been let go. And she also found out that a week after she was released, all the other women in her age group were sent to the gas chambers. After the war, Corey made good on her and Betsy's plans for a rehabilitation center. She established a home for survivors of the concentration camps as well as Dutch people who had collaborated with the Germans during the war. And she made it a place of healing, hope, reconciliation, and forgiveness. She also started to travel, going from place to place, speaking about the gospel, Jesus Christ, and the power of forgiveness. One of the places she traveled was Germany. And it was there in 1947 that she met someone she didn't expect. I'll let Ten Boom in her own words take over, and it's a bit long, but I think it's worth it. She writes, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I liked to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. 
But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a command of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who had nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Now again, from a human perspective, nothing about that is explainable. Right? Uh, Nothing about that makes sense. Nothing about that is easy or I would say even possible without the Holy Spirit. But that's what Corey Ten Boom had. She had the Holy Spirit. And so she was able to forgive. Now, maybe at this point you're thinking, well, that's all well and good, Brandon. Uh, but Abba Moses, the Christians of Hernhut, Corey Tenboom, they're saints. What's a person like me to do? Well, I'd like to tell you a story about a person like you, like me, Mr. Heisinger. Mr. Heisinger was an older man who lived in the neighborhood I grew up in. As a kid, I knew him to be the most gracious, kind, patient person I had ever met. But my dad knew him as someone else. That's because before he was the gracious, kind, patient person I knew, my dad told me that he had been an angry person. And not just any kind of angry person, but a raging, stewing, out-of-control angry person. Regularly flying off the handle at the drop of a hat, Mr. Heisinger had been a terror to his wife, his kids, and everyone else who knew him. Until one day. It's because one day, after yet again flying off the handle over something that shouldn't have mattered that much, Mr. Heisinger had a realization. He realized 
he didn't want to be the person that he had become. He didn't want to have this out-of-control temper. He didn't want to be this, this raging, seething time bomb of a person. He didn't want to be someone that his wife and kids were afraid of. And so he started praying. He started praying for calm, for patience, and for the Holy Spirit to change his heart. And slowly but surely, that's what happened. It didn't happen all in one day. But eventually it did. And far from the quivering mass of anger he had become, he became instead the person that I knew him to be years later, which was kind, gracious, and patient. And it was all a work of the Holy Spirit. So was another experience I had this time in seminary, and this is the last one. Don't worry. Some of you know this already, but while I was at Calvin Seminary, I worked in campus ministries at Calvin University. Assigned to a dorm, I was in charge of facilitating dorm worship, Bible studies, and general spiritual care for the students who live there. And as part of that work, I also got to know the RAs in that dorm, the resident assistants who worked there and lived with those students. And one day, one of them sought me out. This RA had long struggled with a stutter. By that uh, but that day, in the lobby of the dorm, he told me stutter-free that something had happened. You see, the week before, he'd been in the lobby of the Covenant Fine Arts Center, which is the on-campus venue for concerts, movies, and other events at Calvin. And unbeknownst to him, on the other side of the room was a freshman, someone I knew, but he did not. And this freshman was standing there talking with his friends when suddenly, out of the blue, he heard a voice. See that guy over there, the voice said, referring to the RA. I want you to heal his stutter. Take clean water and put it on his tongue. Immediately, the freshman obeyed, which already makes him more faithful than me. Because if that thought popped into my mind, I would not have obeyed. He started walking to the nearest drinking fountain to get some water when the voice stopped him. No, the voice said, clean water. And his gaze was directed to a table nearby with an unopened water bottle on it. He walked over to it, picked it up, walked up to the RA and said, I know this sounds crazy, but God just told me to heal your stutter. Can I put this water on your tongue? And the RA, who had never met this freshman before, shocked that this stranger knew about his stutter, nodded and opened his mouth. And the freshman put the water on his tongue, and as the RA told me a week later, he immediately knew he'd been healed. And he had, because he told me that entire story in the lobby of our dorm without stuttering once. Now again, I personally knew both of the people involved in that miracle. And I don't know why God chose to heal that RA's stutter when there are a lot of people with much worse conditions that I would like to see him heal in addition. But I know that he healed that person. And I also know that apart from the Holy Spirit, I can't explain anything about that. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. But that, my friends, is the power of the Holy Spirit. He makes unexplainable things explainable. You know what else is unexplainable? the gospel. You see, for whatever reason, rather than just do everything himself in this world, which he easily could, God chooses to use us instead, broken, fallible, sinful people to accomplish his purposes. 
I love how the theologian N.T. Wright talks about that in a book he wrote a few years ago. He says, so often when people look out on the world and its disasters, they wonder why God doesn't just march in and take over. Why, they ask, does he permit it? Why doesn't he send a thunderbolt and put things right? The answer is that God does send thunderbolts, human ones. He sends in the poor in spirit. The meek, the mourners, the peacemakers, the hungry for justice people, they are the way God wants to act in his world. They are more effective than any lightning flashes or actual thunderbolts. They will use their initiative. They will see where the real needs are and go to meet them. They will weep at the tombs of their friends, at the tombs of their enemies. Some of them will get hurt. Some may be killed. That is the story of Acts all through. There will be problems, punishments, setbacks, shipwrecks, but God's purpose will come through. These people, prayerful, humble, faithful, will be the answer not to the question why, but to the question, what? What needs to be done here? Who is most at risk? How can we help? Whom shall we send? God works in all things with and through those who love him. And how does God work with and through those who love him? Through his spirit. Through his Son, Jesus Christ, God has justified, saved, and redeemed us. And through his Spirit, he has also sanctified, transformed, and changed us. That's the dynamic, dynamite power of the Holy Spirit. And if we let him, he will use that power to do incredible work with and through us as well. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you created us in the beginning. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have forgiven us our sin. And now through your Holy Spirit, you are recreating us into the people you have always meant us to be. And you use us to do your work in this world. Thanks be to you. Thank you for sending us your spirit. May we walk in step with him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.